So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1339, Money, Meditation, and Manifesting Wealth with Dina Kaplan, founder of The Path. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I literally was standing at a street corner one day across the street from my office at Broom and Lafayette in downtown Manhattan. And this voice came to me. Uh, I wasn't really spiritual at the time. This voice came through me that just said, you've got to get out of here. You need to lead the opposite life and the opposite part of the world. And you've got to act right away. So against all better judgment and helping to run this tech company that I thought I'd make 10 million or 20 million from or who knows what, I walked away. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are kicking off the week with a deep dive into money, mindset, and meditation, manifestation. Is there another M word we can throw into the mix? My guest is Dina Kaplan. She is founder of The Path, where she teaches meditation for the modern mind. She's taught thousands of people to meditate around the world and at festivals, including South by Southwest and Sundance. Prior to founding The Path, Dina was co-founder and chief operating officer of the text startup blip.tv in web video. Before that, she was an Emmy award-winning television news reporter for local NBC stations. She's worked at MTV News. She's worked at the White House. She was named one of Fortune Magazine's most powerful women, entrepreneurs, and Fast Company's most influential women of Web 2.0. She gave that past life all up for her new journey, bringing meditation into the mainstream. Now, truth be told, I do not meditate. Tried it. It's not for me. And so Dina talks about how while meditating may not be for everybody, we can all learn how to raise consciousness, elevate awareness, and bring more money, wealth, richness into our lives. Here is Dina Kaplan. Dina Kaplan, welcome to So Money. I am very excited for our conversation. I feel like it's going to relax me. It's going to relax me. Heck yeah. And if I can relax someone doing a podcast about money and finance, then, you know, more power to me (laughs) and to both of us. Yes, this is going to be a different experience for listeners. We're going to talk about money and meditation, money, mindfulness, but also what you describe as kind of the economics behind things like meditating and Buddhism. And uh, before we get to all of that, though, all the things that you're an expert in, let's talk about your journey. Uh, Dina, I was reading your bio online and you're the founder of The Path, which teaches meditation for the modern mind, which we're going to get into very soon. But before that, you had a whole career um, in in tech land, in tech startups. You were chief operating officer of Blip TV. Uh, before that, you were an Emmy award-winning television news reporter for local NBC stations. So you come from media, you come from tech, you come from the frenzied worlds, I should say, of media and tech, which maybe now, as I say it out loud, shouldn't surprise me that you were looking for a retreat from that. Because uh, I know I definitely had my anxiety attacks as working in New York City media. But tell me about your moment of discovery when you realized you were done with it and you wanted to go more 
intentionally into this path of meditation and uh, mindfulness. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm really excited to share this with everybody that is listening around the world, because even if you're not specifically going to go into wellness or meditation, a lot of people right now, we all know about the great resignation, are thinking about what is my purpose? What is my meaning? And that meaning might be going into a different field that has nothing whatsoever to do with wellness. And by the way, I also used to work in politics. My first job out of college or not, was in the White House. So that was in a nice, relaxing atmosphere. <laughs> so, yeah, so I went from the very frenzied, busy, stressful world of politics into old media and TV and then into new media and tech, exactly as you say. And what's funny about all of this, and perhaps you and your listeners can relate to this, is that I actually I had a complicated job as COO and founder of a super fast growing, fast moving tech startup in the very emerging space of web video at the time. But I actually figured out how to do my job. It was hard. I worked a ton of hours, but I, I figured that out over a number of years. What I couldn't figure out how to do, and like I said, may, perhaps many of you can relate, was I couldn't figure out how to be myself in that role. I kept living in the should. I kept doing what I thought I should do, which was to not rock the boat. I even had a hard time giving negative feedback to people that were working for me, my own team at that tech startup, which was called Blip, because I just wanted everyone to like me. I was over indexing on the likability factor. And what I really lacked and what really hurt me was just the confidence to be myself and let the cards fall where they may. So what happened, as you're referring to, is that this all manifested into panic attacks. And it was it was pretty extreme. I don't know if you or your listeners have had them, but imagine I would feel this tingling at the top of my head and then I would feel rushes, like racings of energy and tingles shooting through my body so intensely that I thought I was going to pass out. I thought I was going to faint. And I was living and working in New York at the time. And I lived in absolute terror of passing out in the middle of a New York City intersection and then maybe with me and then having a cab roll over me and then I wouldn't even look good for the funeral. So it was like this very macabre vein like panic and fear that was beginning to consume me so much so that for the last two years of helping to run the company when I was literally in the press every single day speaking at fancy conferences, I was giving talks pretty much seven days a week uh, and I didn't tell anyone well, I shared with one person, uh, but no one else, not my best friend, my doctor, my parents. I didn't share with anyone that I couldn't I couldn't walk by myself anywhere because I was consumed by panic attacks. So you say what I'm hearing is you had a fear of not being liked, being rejected. What did you think it meant to be liked? What were you, what was not, you know, I mean, because I went through all of this. And so I really want to hear from you because I want to make sense of what I was going through. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So for me, I have a very particular trigger around this. And I think you and many of your listeners might relate to this, although perhaps it wasn't this extreme or maybe it was even more. So as a little kid, I was this frizzy haired, very non-cosmopolitan kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, originally. Family super focused on education. And I was just not cool in any sense of that word. I was this nerdy, nice, kind of innocent kid. 
And my parents, trying to do the right thing for me, sent me to summer camp with all of these very cosmopolitan girls from these faraway, glamorous sounding places like New York City or Los Angeles. And I was way in over my head. And what ended up happening is I got bullied really badly. And this was before we had that word and before any kid would have known of any resources. So I just thought I was all alone and being the reject of this entire camp and the counselors were in on it. And, and honestly, I could start crying. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. I'm almost getting emotional telling you this. And at the end of that summer, this is like maybe nine-year-old me, I made a vow to myself and I said, I am never going to be the reject again. I'm going to hone my social skills so finely that I will be popular for the rest of my life. And then I did, for better or worse. I studied the people that others gravitated towards. I studied how often they spoke. I studied their gestures, how close they stood to people. I studied everything about them. And then I copied that and then I emulated it. And look, it worked. I was popular in college. I was popular. I started off working at the White House and I went to MTV News and I was popular in DC and I was popular in New York. I was always the girl surrounded by people organizing parties and events and getting people to do things. And I was kind of the life of the party. But the problem is, it was at the expense of ever really being myself. So to really directly answer your question, I worried that being me, I would be rejected and that I might even get fired at the company. I was constantly convinced I was about to get fired, even though I was a co-founder of the company. And at some point, arguably, one of the most essential people at the company for a while. I probably was the most essential person at the company, but I still thought I was going to get fired. Hmm. So maybe the the headline there is don't worry about being liked. Don't be afraid of being liked. Be afraid of being a fraud, right? You're being untruthful to yourself. And that does create a lot of anxiety because you, although you're the only one who's really in on it, <laughs> the world doesn't know what what's behind this. They think you're you, but you know the truth and, and carrying that burden every day um, is it, it, you're, it's a lot. You will break. Yeah, it's a lot. And people would whisper to my co-founders as the company became more prominent than I became more prominent as one of the very, very, very few women founders in tech in the country that anyone knew of. Uh, and probably the most prominent one in New York. I mean, I did a lot of things wrong, as I'm saying, but I was I was good at my job job and good at speaking with the press. And so what happened is people would whisper to my co-founders that I didn't seem authentic and they were right. And then the other thing that happened is that I lost a lot of power at the company. And I noticed that I stopped getting invited to meetings that I should have been at. And it was because people, they couldn't trust me and they couldn't relate to me. We had at three or four o'clock, everyone in the company would play a game. I don't know, it was Minecraft or something and everyone would play, but I never played because I thought, oh my God, I'm about to be fired. I should work. So I just worked through that hour, but it actually made it you know, I was that person that no one could relate to and I wasn't fun. And everyone would go out for coffee every day to La Colombe, which is awesome in Soho. And I never went because I kept saying, wait, we have a coffee machine here. Like, shouldn't everyone stay at work and be efficient? I was, I was that girl. I <laughs> I'm was the co-founder. <laughs> I'm paying the bills. <laughs> I was no fun. No, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. Um, and, and so I'm guessing that you were yearning for some peace in your life and you found it. But tell us about that, that part of the journey that, that, you know, you at some point said, I'm done with this. And what happened then? 
Yeah. So it was not a pro and con list. It was not a thoughtful thing. I literally was standing at a street corner one day across the street from my office at Broom and Lafayette in downtown Manhattan. And this voice came to me. Uh, I wasn't really spiritual at the time. This voice came through me that just said, you've got to get out of here. You need to lead the opposite life and the opposite part of the world. And you've got to act right away. So against all better judgment and helping to run this tech company that I thought I'd make 10 million or 20 million from, or who knows what, I walked away. I walked away. I booked a flight to Asia and I flew six days later and I didn't know how or why I did this. I just knew I had to get away. You say a voice. Was it your voice? Was it a feeling that then now in retrospect, you're like, it said something to me. And then I, that's why you call it a voice. But like, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because what I, I want people to be able to recognize this when it happens to them too. Yeah. And I write about this now and teach this. So I love this topic. I know now as a teacher of mindfulness and meditation that this was the voice of intuition. And quite honestly, it it saved me. It might have saved my life. I was not in a healthy place with these panic attacks that were happening absolutely constantly and just pushing down every natural aspect of my personality. At the time, being the frenetic, uh, people called me the Tasmanian devil, which I think I took as a compliment, which was not really a compliment. Um, So yeah, at the time, it was this voice that it felt like it just came through me. And it wasn't that voice that says, go get a coffee, Heath Bar Crunch ice cream, or stay up late and watch that 10th episode of Mad Men or whatever, some TV show that you're enjoying. It wasn't that voice that's like, oh, do this bad thing. That isn't helpful. This was the voice of this is what you must do. This is what I must do. There was, I had no question about it. I had to get out of there and I followed it. And it was the best thing I have ever done in my entire life. Did you cry? Because I'll tell you the moments in my life where I feel so moved to do something quite profound or big, like a life-changing move, like applying to journalism school when I knew no one was going to be down for that conversation in the Tarabi household. My parents would be like, I'm sorry, what? You know, you, you need to go make money. Journalism is a, is, a, is a hobby. And yet, as I was filling out those applications, my essays, you know, that ask you like, what's your why? Why do you want to come? I was like, it was like tear stained, these tear stained essays uh, that I was putting in the manila envelopes, sending off to uh, these New York addresses. And I thought to myself, I think this means I really want to do this. I'm so moved. I can't even, I cannot even control the emotions. Oh my gosh. I love that. Okay. So truth be told, I am definitely a crier. I cry at an emotional advertisement on television and that film like Ratatouille was losing it. Uh, But no, I didn't cry at all. And there's another critical moment where I had this huge, huge, huge life shift that we'll probably talk about uh, very, very shortly because it's kind of the second half of this story. There was no crying. There was no pro and con list. I mean, remember, I'm the COO of this company. I am running (laughs) finance. I am like hardcore having to be analytical. There was nothing analytical about this. There was no, nothing logical. It was, here is what I must do. Okay. Perfect. No crying. I'm going to take this this ship of <laughs> Dina founder, whatever that was always heading to the left, and I'm going to turn it at 180 degrees, and I'm going to go to the right. And it was just this 
is what I'm doing next with my life, with my body and with everything that I have. The world a better place because you made that decision. Um, I want to talk about the impact you're making in the world. But but first, maybe we could take a step back and talk a little bit about what you mean. Earlier, I said this, that you, you describe it as the economics of mindfulness, the economics of meditation. Can you expand on that for us? So I love this topic because what I think people don't realize is that if you put Buddhism into a category like religion, like Christianity or Judaism or being a Muslim, anything along that, those lines, which, which you can, or some people believe Buddhism is just a philosophy and that you can live with it while being Christian or Jewish or anything else. But if you put it into that religious category, I think it's really important for you and for your listeners to know that traditionally there have been institutions around religion. We know that in Catholicism, this is the case. And so if you are a priest or let's say you're a rabbi in the Jewish tradition, you're not out there holding out a hat, hoping that your congregants or people walking down the street are going to put some coins in there to keep you alive. There's been the Catholic church that has supported you or your congregation. If you're a rabbi, that supports you. So if you are out there teaching mindfulness, teaching Buddhism, teaching any of these wonderful practices that can help keep people from the state that I was in, uh, maybe a little bit help you with the <laughs> bursting into tears, emotional side. There's no institution behind you. And so you must, and I say this and you're not seeing me now, but my hands are up and fists are raised and I'm smiling a big smile. You must charge people and you should charge people with a great amount of joy because you are going to change their lives. And this is what people need now. I mean, people are feeling a lot of emotion, sadness, loneliness, anxiety. I'm sure people have read all the stats about this and the people losing it in airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. So what can help them? Meditation can help them. The Buddhist path and learning about the Buddha, the Buddha's way with the Eightfold Path, about how to live with more happiness and freedom and ease. This really is the path literally away from suffering and towards happiness and freedom and ease. And so if you're helping people with this, then you'll help them earn more money. You'll help them be better partners, spouses, friends, colleagues, whatever it is. And so I say with incredible conviction and delight, if you're teaching meditation, which for example, I do, you should charge people and you should charge people a lot if you do a good job because you're going to change their lives. And there is absolutely no harm in that. So what I resist is I've had people invite me to go and speak in uh, for in Asia, for example, or in Abu Dhabi. And, and I'll say, okay, great. That sounds interesting. What's the cost? And they'll send some snarky note, like what you're spreading Buddhism. Don't you want to do this for free? And I'll say no. And they'll say, okay, we'll pay your way. And I'm like, okay, but do you pay rent? And they'll say, I do. And I'll say, well, I have to pay for my housing, too. So how are you going to support that? And there is no there's no freaking shame in that. And likewise, if you want to learn meditation or learn Buddhism, you should not expect or want this person to do that for free. You should want to support them so that they can do this either as a side hobby or full time and know that you're enabling this person to help you and hundreds and thousands and maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of other people. And this is something you should feel great about doing. Mm -hmm. See, now here I thought you were going to talk about the economics of mindfulness in the in the sense that when we are more mindful, when we do meditate, when we raise consciousness, that it can lead to more wealth, 
which I think you would agree with. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the other side of this coin, which is, Dina, how have you seen the manifestation of wealth through mindfulness and meditation and um, raising the consciousness? Oh my gosh, this is a great topic because actually I can start by saying that many of the top people in Wall Street, Ray Dalio, uh, the people running all the, the top hedge funds, they all meditate. Because here's the thing, if you go back to look at me, the girl uh, running, helping to run that tech company, I had meetings filling up my schedule as probably you and many of your listeners can relate to. I probably had six or seven meetings a day. I was on boards. I was on boards of advisors. I was on committees of this and that. My whole schedule was just, I mean, it was bananas uh, during the day, which is why I had to work all night uh, to catch up on emails and everything else. But none of that was strategic. So I would accept calls with people that didn't serve me. I would join boards of advisors that didn't help me or my company. So I was my best friend and I always say, we're running really fast, but it might be in the wrong direction. So I was super busy, quote unquote, but I was busy doing what a great famous Lama set calls irresponsibilities or busy work, which is filling up or let's call it active laziness. So I was busy, but it was a lazy kind of busy because it wasn't strategic. What mindfulness and all types of meditation give you is that ability to, first of all, be be really strategic with what you're doing, but also to know if you're heading in the right direction. So it's both of those. Where do I want to go? And what's the most strategic way to get there? And so now I also, against all better judgment, run a company, but I run a company that that is mindful and I am mindful about my time. So if there's a call request that comes in or to join a committee, a board, whatever it is, rather than just saying yes, and then plodding along through three years of quarterly calls, I'll actually think, is this something I want to do? Is this something that serves me? Is this something that serves my company? So that I can literally work two thirds less time Mm. or done, be happier, be thoughtful and be more strategic. So there is a very, very, very clear tie in between mindfulness and wealth creation. Well, what you just did was um, you presented us with questions that we should ask ourselves, which will raise consciousness and provide clarity. And for those listening like myself who have tried meditating, um, I'm not totally uh, hung up on it, but I, I think I will keep trying and I will just someday maybe get there. But in the meantime, I think there is also something to be said about just making sure that you are having an awareness, right, of your priorities, of your goals. That is not meditation, but it is uh, being more aware and, and so you presented us with some questions like earlier, what, what else, what else should we be asking ourselves daily, actively um, with this, if we are in the pursuit of being more productive, uh, attracting more opportunities into our lives that align with our values and our financial goals? I'm so glad you brought up awareness. This is really just about awareness. And if you have different ways of getting there, then you can get there in different ways. And by the way, meditation doesn't just have to be sitting. I know a lot of people have anxiety. And people stuff. do it on the subway. Yeah. I mean, well, and also it's not a lot of people that have trauma that's stored in their body that they might not even be aware of. They need to move. They need to walk. And so you can do a walking meditation. You can even shake out your trauma. That's actually a really helpful thing to do. But 
all of this is about cultivating awareness. And so I'll even invite you right now to do something that I, I just thought of myself, which is uh, like a peripheral eye meditation. So I invite you to open up your peripheral vision, even do it right now. And just look from the corners of both of your eyes and see what's in your field of vision. And even in doing this really quick exercise, we can see that it's so easy to live our days with blinders on, which is only seeing like literally what's right in front of us. We have an incredible depth of vision that's available to us. So this is literally, and it's also a bit of a metaphor. So I think one thing to do, because a lot of people are so stressed right now that they can act badly. Perhaps you've seen this in your life, even in the last 24 hours, whether it's a barista, a friend, a loved one, whatever it is. So I like to, if that ever happens, I like to think about my mind as just being as wide and vast as the sky. So think about the sky over the whole entire earth. And then you can think of that moment, let's say a barista or someone just snaps at you. You can think of that as a little rainstorm over like, let's say a, a small part of Ohio or something like that, a very small part of your mind that doesn't even talk about New Zealand or Bangladesh or all of the, the expanse that your mind is creating. And with that, you can allow that little rainstorm to happen in a tiny point, a tiny percentage and point of your mind, and then just hold it, bring a loving awareness to perhaps Perhaps this person is stressed. Perhaps they have trauma from their childhood. Most likely this snapping, whatever negative energy has nothing to do with you. And you can just move on with your day. So that's, those are two kind of little exercises. I love that. You As you spoke, I, I was imagining listeners a lot because, you know, they write to me and they tell me, you know, how, how they listen to the show. A lot of times it's when they're exercising or walking their pets. And I just imagined them uh, looking over in the corners of their eyes, as they were listening to this, uh, to this show. So that, I don't know, listeners, what do you think of that? DM me. You know what I saw? I'm in my bedroom. So I saw like my husband's sweater hanging on a chair. And as I looked to my right, I saw my neighbor's house, which they just moved in and I haven't met them yet. So maybe that's, um, that was a reminder for me to, to, to say hello. Dina, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I do want to talk about the path, uh, your company and, as I said earlier, it teaches meditation for the modern mind. What is the modern mind? Where's it, where are our heads at right now? So I think we need help and I can give more <laughs> <Yes>. help. <laughs> I think that people are really, they're really having a tough time. So if you are just know wherever you are, wherever you are in the world that you're not alone. So another, another tip I would give, uh, which might be very counterintuitive if you're running a company or you're a founder or you're managing a big division, uh, but make sure you have fun every day. Life is not about suffering. There is no <laughs> cries. There's no golden ticket. Like from the Willy Wonka world that you're given, if you've suffered the most in your life, like, okay, I am first in line for heaven or whatever you believe in <laughs> happens. Uh, so we're meant, we're honestly meant to have fun. We're animals like, you know, camels and panda bears and all the other animals out there. And you always see if you go to the zoo or you're going to Africa and you see these animals out in the wild, uh, they're having fun, right? They're playing, they're enjoying themselves. So whatever fun is for you, I was telling my mom this a couple weeks ago when she was stressed about moving and she said, I don't want to have fun. I just want to read but you know that's great you can read if you want to read you can uh go for a walk you yeah can fun is not like dancing on a bar top I think that's what I thought fun always meant it meant like taking risks being wild and that's not my personality at least not anymore and so 
define your own fun. Like fun is not what you just see in the Bridesmaids movie. You know, like that's, <laughs> it's a, it is a big world of fun out there. Find your fun. Yeah. I mean, I actually just decided to start studying astrophysics. Don't even ask, but that's fun. Wow. Like, yeah, I love learning. So yeah, I just got a book and I'm signing up for a course and yeah, it can be fun to learn, you know, have fun in whatever way you want. But if you are in the, the business world, I would say that obviously if you're managing a team, uh, which you probably are, then your employees, as you know, are your most valuable asset. And so I think that part of this path is about bringing compassion to every interaction. There's something called the Buddha mind, which is not how we're naturally wired. So don't worry if you're not, but it's something we can train ourselves to cultivate, just knowing, especially now how much stress people are under and how much anxiety there is in the world. And so it's about that choice, no matter what you're hit with, uh, it's that choice to choose to bring compassion to your interactions, to choose to know that when people act badly, 99.9% of the time, it has nothing to do with you. It's just something going on in that person's life, probably from their past even. So it's just this choice to bring compassion uh, to all of the interactions. I mean, you want to be wise. And if you need to fire someone, you got to fire someone. But in your interactions, it's just a way to bring more ease into your day, into your life and to create a, a better corporate culture. So I think these things are all important. So in terms of what the path does, it's funny, we so during the pandemic, we had to do a huge shift because we were doing weekly meditations in person in New York, and we were doing monthly social events around meditation. All of this was in person. And we ended up shifting. We had a teacher training program, but we brought it online. And honestly, honestly, it is a better program. So we have this extraordinary teacher training program now that actually a lot of people in business, we've had founders of public companies, founders and CEOs of public companies join us, investment bankers, entrepreneurs uh, still growing and scaling their company, uh, their companies, but really serious big consumer brands uh, join us. Uh, so some people do it to learn about the Buddhist path, to learn how to become happier, to learn how to reduce anxiety. Some people just join to be in a happy, supportive group of people. And other people want to learn to guide a meditation for their team or company, or if they're a coach or therapist, they just want to add those skills to the skills they already have. Or even if you're a parent to learn how to guide your kids or your parents perhaps in meditation. So we brought that online. Uh, that's really, really, really exciting. And yeah, so that's a wonderful thing that we do that I'm really proud of. And then we have a, our Mela retreat, which is really designed for people like yourself and your listeners with big impact with whatever they're doing, whether you're running a company, a nonprofit, you're an activist, an author, whatever it is, or you're just starting out in business, finance, entertainment. But we, we, bring together people with impact and put them on an actual retreat, but we make it fun rather than my first retreat on what I went on, which had no soap and no toilet paper and no air conditioning. And it was 110 degrees. Hmm. Mela, which is, it's at thepath.com slash Mela apply. Uh, Mela is fun and it's beautiful. And we throw concerts every night and we do walking meditation and we go hiking in the morning. So those are the main things, but we're increasingly getting a lot of requests for corporate meditation. So I love doing that, hosting retreats for corporations or just doing online meditations for teams or for people as well. Really helping people to not be like myself, the person stuffing down my personality and having Aww. panic attacks. Yeah. So I really am at this point of just wanting to pay it forward and help people. 
What a half hour. I have to say, I'm looking forward to these walking meditations now. I think that's that's more my speed. That's definitely my speed. Dina Kaplan, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And we'll be sure to check out all of your offerings. Wishing you a, a great week. Farnoosh, thank you so much and enjoy those walking meditations. That's 100% of meditation and 100% valid. Thanks so much to Dina for joining us. To learn more about The Path and Dina, go to thepath.com. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope your day is so money.